welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. Or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. You are here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Day of the News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, courageous and colorful Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm doing great. Took a Curtis, uh, we, we still got a problem with some noise coming over from your speaker, uh, from your, your uh, headset mm. or whatever it is. Uh, uh, I don't know I what that is. But... Oh, let's try that. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Curtis. But it, oh. It's kind of like a little bit bad here. 
While you do that, I'll introduce what's going on with the show. Uh, we have a great show. We've got a first guest up is C.S. Walker, not C.S. Bennett, but C.S. Walker, a former NSA agent, and he has the website The Varon Dossier on a book he is writing. He's going to be talking to us about a little-known uh, problem down in Puerto Rico. Uh, no one's talking about this. You don't see this on any of the news stations. Why, I don't know, because this is a major disaster uh, with still the lack of power after Hurricane Maria a year ago, more than a year ago. He's going to be coming on. And the second half of the show, we've got Tamara Lee, and um, we're going to be talking to her about all different types of subjects going on. So we've got a great show lined up, a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of things to cover. There is a... Um, a uh, special race going on in Mississippi, and right now it looks like uh, Hyde Smith may win it by approximately 10 points. But we'll wait and see. Uh, it's a little too early to call that race for sure. <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, Democrats would love to call it ahead of time and hope the polls close with everyone going home thinking that SB1 and not Hyde Smith. Uh, so we'll be keeping up on that. Uh, we'll be talking about that race and other things as well as the caravan, what's going on with there. Uh, that said... I want to welcome everyone that's listening in up on YouTube and Facebook and all the other outlets that we're on. Those that are starting to show up in the chat room and our studio, welcome aboard. Those that do listen in faithfully know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out Army Staff Sergeant Alexander Conrad. His, he was killed on June 8th of 2018 this year while serving during U.S. Africa Command operations. And this is from The Fallen, from the Military Times, and it reads, Staff Sergeant Alexander Conrad was assigned to 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group. He was killed by enemy indirect fire, according to the Pentagon, on June 8th of this year. Conrad was supporting Operation Octave Shield, according to the Pentagon. Four other U.S. troops and one partner force member were wounded in the attack. The attack took place about 2.45 p.m. local time, Friday, June 8th, in Jalalabad, Somalia, when the troops came under mortar and small arms fire from an Al-Shabaab militants. About 800 Somali and Kenyan forces, with support from U.S. troops, were conducting a multi-day operation about 220 miles southwest of Mogadishu when the attack occurred, according to AFRICOM. The goal was to clear al-Shabaab from the contested areas, liberate villages from al-Shabaab control, and establish a permanent combat outpost designed to increase the span of federal government of Somalia security and governance. The U.S. troops were providing advice, assistance, and aerial surveillance during the mission. Born in Mesa, Arizona, Conrad joined the Army in June 2010, according to information from the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. After completing initial training, he was stationed at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Washington, as a human intelligence collector. While stationed at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, Conrad deployed to Afghanistan twice, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. He later completed the French Basic Language course at the Defense Language Institute Foreign Language Center in 2016 and was subsequently assigned to the 3rd Special Forces Group 
as a human intelligence non-commissioned officer, according to USA SOC. His awards and decorations include the Meritorious Unit Commendation, second award, the Army Commendation Medal, third award, the Army Achievement Medal, the Army Good Conduct Medal, second award, the Afghanistan Campaign Medal, the Combat Action Badge, and the Basic Parachutes Badge. He was posthumously awarded the Purple Heart and the Meritorious Service Medal. And this is from Brina Bailey in the Arizona Republic, and it reads, Staff Sergeant Alex Conrad was their middle child, the one who played t-ball as a little boy, football in high school, and lived through two Army deployments in Afghanistan. Images on the church monitors transition from one family memory to another, from one moment in Conrad's life to another. In one photo, Conrad stood with his mother, father, brother, and sister, poised in front of a blue marble backdrop for a family portrait. In another, he gripped a t-ball bat, smiling ear to ear as a toddler. His parents did not speak at their son's funeral, nor did his siblings. They sat quietly during the memorial, listening to the Catholic priest remember their loved one. Conrad was killed by a mortar blast on June 8th in Somalia during an attack by al-Shabaab, a terrorist group affiliated with al-Qaeda. Family, friends, and strangers who wanted to honor the soldier gathered at the public funeral service at St. Juan Diego Church in Chandler. Conrad, a human intelligence officer enlisted in the Army's 3rd Special Forces Group, stood tall in one photo among his comrades wearing combat camouflage. A group of those comrades, Joe Owens, Lamar Allen, Oscar Sasis, Donovan Cox, Logan Bass Baxter, and Dominic Rothman, gently pulled the wooden casket covered by an American flag out of the white hearse. The men, dressed in their military best, black coats, navy slacks, patent leather dress shoes, and maroon berets, escorted Conrad into the church. They entered the church and slowly lifted the flag off the casket, methodically folding it before they handed it to Reverend Dan McBride. McBride gave the folded flag to Conrad's family. He told the mourners that he had spoken at other military funerals, but this one was different. Someone who died in combat so young. He praised Conrad, who he knew personally from church. He said Conrad's selfless disposition ruled his personal and military life. Alex was a witness. One hundred or more so friends, family members, and comrades sang worship songs, prayed, and mourned together. He was a good young man, McBride said, because he was taught to be. They watched the photo slideshow on the church monitors as the priest spoke. In the photos, Conrad, an outdoorsman, is sliding through the woods on a snowboard, crouched on a grassy hiking trail next to his dog, and holding two frosty mugs of beer, smiling like he's proud of himself. They stayed mostly silent as Conrad's body entered and exited the church. Today's show is dedicated to Army Staff Sergeant Alexander Comrade. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we also 
dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We can never say thank you enough. And we dedicate it to them with this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. Listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And Curtis, I don't hear background noise. Yay, we're back. Uh, before we bring our guest in, Curtis, uh, I just want to make a special note out to a friend of the show, uh, a wonderful man. Uh, he does amazing, amazing good work. Uh, to Colonel Jim Harding, he's been on the show several times, and uh, like I said, just a wonderful person. Uh, he was traveling uh, in Texas on Sunday, and unfortunately, he had a heart attack. And as of today, as I understand it, he is going uh, for heart surgery as we speak uh, down in Texas. So our prayers go out to uh, Colonel Jim Harding and his wife. Uh, Barbara, out there in Texas. Just a special note, folks. Keep them in your prayers, please. Uh, let's bring along our guest, uh, former NSA agent. Uh, he's got a huge, long dossier. I'm not going to go over everything on it, uh, but he's also got the website, The Varian Dossier. Let's welcome aboard C.S. Walker. Good afternoon, C.S. How are you today? Good afternoon, Al. Thank you for having me on. All right. I got to say that uh, my 
co-host goes by CS also. So I'm going to have to remember to say Curtis for CS and CS for you. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> No, no, not at all. <laughs> the C.S. Lewis, think about that too. He was long before you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, um, you worked with the NSA, and you're writing a book about that uh, called the Baron Dossier. And as I understand, that's partially autobiography. Bio- I can't say the word. You know what the word I want to use? Am I right or wrong? I'm not going to say it's completely autobiographical, but I will say it's it's mostly historical fiction. And there are aspects in history that are involved in this. And it's basically about a young man whose family legally emigrated to the United States during the Franco regime in Spain. And he grew up in the United States and eventually joined the United States Army as a signals intelligence analyst. And for those of you who don't know what a signals intelligence analyst is, basically they can discern if a signal is radio communications, cell phone communications, radar communications, satellite communications, any kind of communication system, and basically do weave their magic. Um, but it's a very dark world, mind you. Uh, and eventually he goes from being a signals intelligence analyst to becoming a signals intelligence field operative, working with other agencies and organizations, including those within the United States and foreign countries. And he steps off with his first assignment as a field operator for Operation Snowcap, which basically took place in Central and South America in the counter-drug operations of the time. And the Varen Dossier is a series of books that I'm working on, but the first one, uh, I'm almost done editing it, has to do with Varen's first mission and starting to learn the hard, cold, cruel lessons of that world. Now I read the uh, the pieces that you had put up the excerpts on your um on your website and I found it very fascinating. Uh and I like the way you developed the characters. Uh when do you think you're going to have it out and out to your publisher and then to be produced? Well, see that's the problem. I don't have a publisher yet and I am really looking for one because every single person that has read what I've given them and I've basically focused on individuals that served Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and the different aspects or the different communities within uh, the, the different branches, whether it's special operations, uh, ground pounder, infantry grunts, to guys that worked in the intelligence field. They all said the same thing. It's very reminiscent of their time in or very reminiscent of what they're going through now. Now, mind you, I haven't put a lot of things in there. There are certain things I didn't put in there for the simple fact is that I don't want to give away too many trade secrets. And they've said, oh, yeah, this was great, but you forgot to put this. I'm like, yeah, uh, hold on. I can't put that in there. I'm not going to tell the bad guys exactly <laughs> what you guys do because that's a dead giveaway. 
And they're like, oh, yeah, good point. I'm like, yeah, you were infantry. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that friendly ribbing that we do amongst each other in the military, but if somebody else who never served does it, we just give them the stare of death. <laughs> I do that to people when they talk to me about police work. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, it's funny because Kat got you in contact with me because of another issue that you got involved in. And this is something that no network is talking about. And you don't see it anywhere. You don't hear anything about it. Uh, this was right after, actually before Hurricane Maria, the problems that Puerto Rico had with their power grid and how mismanaged and how corrupt it is. And you started delving into it, and you found out a lot of stuff. Now, it's funny because when uh, Kat was telling me about this, I started to you know, do a little research and pull up uh, stories and files. But when you sent me the list, out of that list, three of those were articles I had already pulled up. So we think alike. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, tell us about this. Uh, how you got involved in doing the research on this? Um, well, it it started, it wasn't from my own initiative, mind you. It wasn't a case of, oh, let me take a look at this just for fun. Because, well, I do try to have a life. But what happens is that a friend of mine who works for the Depart- Department of Homeland Security, he gave me a call and we were just talking, catching up. And then he goes, hey, by the way, you're not going to believe what I had to do. And I was like, what's that? And he basically told me he had to go to Puerto Rico, and he had to look at uh, facilities that would, you know, be conducive to creating a Department of Emergency Management in Puerto Rico. Because years ago, the United States had turned around and given, the, given Puerto Rico all the plans, a list of everything they're going to need to create a permanent fixed station for emergency management. And the Puerto Rican government never did it. So Department of Homeland Security decided, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to go check it out. Well, they, he went down to Rosie Rose, Roosevelt Rose, which used to be a naval station, but also housed Army and Air Force personnel, predominantly Army and Navy, and, which must have been great during the Army-Navy games. Wow. But at that time, he discovered something very fascinating, A, there is a deep seaport there where ships bringing in emergency goods can go there instead of San Juan. He also found out that the airstrip there is viable for large transport planes, such as the C-5 Galaxy, to bring in supplies and equipment in the event of an emergency. But then he found something that totally, completely shocked him. He discovered that the windmill farm in Puerto Rico, on the east coast of Puerto Rico, was not connected to the grid, the electrical grid. Those windmills were not contributing anything to the power needs of the people of Puerto Rico. Now, that's, that's crazy. You would think, you know, here you are, they've gone through storms before. With all the storms they were going through before, they would have had this problem fixed. And yet, the taxpayers of Puerto Rico, the federal taxpayers are all pouring money into this and nothing's being done. So where's the money going? That is a million dollar question. Now, mind you, you have a situation where before these windmills were constructed, you had roving blackouts throughout the entire island of Puerto Rico. 
And it was because the power stations there in Puerto Rico were so antiquated. They were built in the 1950s, okay? And there were two major power stations, power plants, and they supplied electricity to the island. Well, one of them completely shut down. So they started basically just taking all the parts that they could from that power plant to maintain the one that was running because the supply, the equipment that they needed, the parts that they needed were no longer being made. And if they ran out of parts, then they would have to, this is the, this is the part that makes me kind of chuckle in disbelief. They had to go to third world nations to get spare parts to keep this one power station going. This one energy plant had to keep going by purchase, bought, stolen, whatever they could, parts from the third world. Now, once the windmills were constructed, the question lies is, where are you, how is it possible that you're going to take technology from the 1950s and be able to connect it where technology from almost the 21st century, basically the 2000s, 50 years later, how are you going to get that technology to meet? How are you going to get that technology, these two different, vastly different technologies, to be able to match up and marry together and work efficiently? Well, there was one report that was put out from a company that said, yay, we did it, yay, look, we're fantastic, we're awesome, we're great. The problem was that they were still having roving blackouts. They were having situations where it just wasn't working. So my question is, if you're celebrating that you managed to connect these two different technologies that are vastly, vastly different and incompatible in almost every single solitary way, the only way they're actually compatible is that some of it is made out of metal. That's it. That's the only way you can, the only thing that can compare these two technologies together. Everything else is completely different then why are you still having roving blackouts after the windmills were built? That's the, that's the question yeah. nobody has been able to answer. Why do you still have roving blackouts? You know, it, it's really ironic because, you know, you've got to look up information on the Energy uh, Commission in Puerto Rico, and you've got a nice little WikiLeaks uh, description here, short, doesn't say much about it. But it's run by the Puerto Rico Energy Commission, which is supposed to oversee the government-owned and run Puerto Rico Energy Power Authority. So you've got the fox in charge of the hen house now, don't you? I wouldn't say it was the fox. I'd say it's the hungry weasel because, I mean, you're insulting the foxes with all the corruption that goes on in that small island. It's more like a weasel. But, I mean, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, I mean... The Puerto Rico Energy Commission, they turn around and they say, oh, well, we're in charge of the development and the distribution of all power on the island. Okay, so why the roving blackouts? Oh, that's not our problem. What? That's exactly yeah. what, you, what you get. That's exactly what you get from them. Oh, man. You know, they, talk, they put up these great wind farms, right, Uh as you said, that's not hooked up into the grid. 
so you had Hurricane Maria come through. You had Hurricane Irma come through. And that was uh, more than a year ago. And yet they still can't get power up. Now, you know, I'm familiar with the Caribbean islands, you know, having been a travel agent, sending people there. My mom lives in the Caribbean. You know, you've got a lot of mountainous roads, which I can understand makes it difficult in storms to get through to put the power up. That is what the media was telling us right in the aftermath of Irma and Maria. Well, you've got to understand it's the topography of the region, which makes you get in, up into the side of the mountains, these little tiny places, got small access roads, blah, 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 blah. But they're not telling you the truth of the matter is, is that, sure, they can get the equipment up there, but they have nothing to bring up with the equipment. The the island of Puerto Rico is it's not a, a huge island. It's really not. But you're absolutely right. There is a mountain range running down the spine of the island. Now, the question is this. Okay, we're trying to reconstruct the power grid and the electrical system for the island of Puerto Rico. Okay, um, how about just simply taking, okay, bear with me, two power plants, one on the north side, one on the south side, and spiderweb them until they meet in the middle along that mountainous spine. That's it. That's all you got to do. And you can use natural gas. The United States will send natural gas to Puerto Rico at a much, much less expensive rate. Now, they're focusing so much on solar and wind power. Well, first of all, solar is not dependable. It is not dependable. And the technology for solar energy, well, that's still, that's still got a lot of kinks in it, which makes it un, not dependable. Then if you take a look at wind farms, that's also ecologically dangerous because now you're slaughtering birds. I mean, if you go to a wind farm, and you look at the base of the wind farm, you will find the carcasses of dead animals, all birds, at the base of a, wind, of a windmill. Now, there are small wind, I call them wind gardens, like the Bacardi factory. They have two windmills that are supplying them with energy, and they're doing well. Even though they have to send people out there to clean up the mess, they're doing well with their two windmills. Now, the wind farm I'm talking about has 13 windmills. That should be enough to supply a, I would say, one-eighth of the island, those 13. So there are smaller windmill gardens along the, uh, around the island, but it's more for, for corporation use, for company use. The bigger ones, the ones that are supplying to the people, the one in particular that I'm speaking about, wasn't even hooked up to the grid. So... Somebody, somebody did some investigation, and he got to me. He was a reporter, and I'm not going to mention his name. But he got back to me, and he said, well, yeah, it seems that uh, they are hooked up. The windmills are hooked up, but this is the one that made me laugh. But they seem to have problems because they still have the, the roving blackouts. Yeah, well, then that means that the windmills are not hooked up. That's exactly what that means. They say, oh, yeah, they're hooked up, but we're having technical difficulties because we still have the roving blackouts. Well, you had the roving blackouts before the windmills went up. And now you're having the, the roving blackouts after the windmills went up. So this is telling me that the windmills are either useless or they're not hooked up to the grid. It's one or the other. It can't be both. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, you... Yes. 
CS to CS. Yeah, um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Puerto Rico is a United States territory. I mean, don't we have um, some kind of fluence to um, kind of like urge them to get these things done? Okay, there is the problem. Uh, the problem is that, first of all, we can't send our military to go in and start constructing and doing engineering work because of a single, this little thing called posse comitatus, federal force such as the United States Army or the United States Navy from going in there and doing what they need to do to help the people because this prevents a president from becoming a dictator and sending out the military to take places over. So... Posse Comitatus prevents the military from going in there. In 1991, there was an agreement written or an agreement signed by the 78 municipalities of Puerto Rico with the governor of Puerto Rico. And that, that 1991 uh, law stated that in the event of an emergency, an emergency of food, shelter, water, and energy needed to be distributed to the people, then the government of Puerto Rico will hold it, the municipalities will go get it, and the municipalities, they will distribute everything. This also included the Puerto Rican energy management, where the municipalities would go to them and let them know what need, what's needed, and if need be, supply the people. Supply would basically inept had no idea what to do, had no idea about anything about energy. They just happened to be that, uh, that mayor's cousin or that mayor's brother-in-law who needed a paycheck. So that law from 1991 it is what's hindering the governor of Puerto Rico from getting things done. Posse Comitatus can never be uh, removed. We need Posse Comitatus in place because God knows what real crazy whack job might come along and become president. So we've got to make sure that Posse Comitatus remains intact. But that 1991 law signed by in Puerto Rico, all that's done is make the leaders of these 78 municipalities extremely rich. Not going to be rescinded because they continue to get rich unless a major news organizations willing to pick up the story and blow the scandal wide open. And then maybe Puerto Rico could start to drain their swamp, but that's not going to happen. They, they don't want to do it. Why? Because it's a liberal community with a liberal media. They're not going to go and do it at all. Um, is it a liberal community? There's Places like Boston, like Massachusetts and, and Puerto Rico, they confuse me because they have these very conservative ideas, these very conservative ideals, but they keep voting for liberals. And I sit there and I just ask myself this one amazing question. Huh? That's it. That's my question. <laughs> huh? And Puerto, Puerto Ricans are very conservative. They're very family-oriented which is a very conservative idea. It, they are very much about life and, and family loving and staying together and staying strong, so on and so forth. But then they keep voting for liberals because of the promises that the liberals keep making them about improving Puerto Rico. And, you know, when the windmills went up, the people said, oh, whoa, look, we're, we're going through the future. They're keeping their promises. Little did they know that the windmills were not connected to the grid. 
You know, I have to agree with you because I pulled up my mother's ballot for the Virgin Islands, and I'm looking at it, and you see a lot of independents, a lot of Democrats, and on the entire ballot that had maybe 65 different candidates on it, there were only two that had the courage to put an R next to their name. So in other words, in the Caribbean, if you want to get elected to office, you have to be either an independent or a Democrat. Otherwise, you can kiss that seat goodbye. And it's amazing. I find that absolutely amazing. See, and I agree with you as far as the liberal media, because there's another story that I worked on. And honestly, it took me less than 15 minutes to find out exactly how Uranium One happened. I just dug where I knew where to dig, and I found documentation, and I found out, oh, so this is how it happened. Now, this, which is affecting hundreds of thousands of lives and they're not covering it because they're not going in and actually investigating for themselves. They're just going to the government of Puerto Rico and saying, hey, do these windmills work? Yes, they do. Okay, thank you. That's it. There's their investigative journalism. Mm. <laughs> well, i got to admit to you, though, uh, Admiral Lyons had written an excellent piece about uh, Uranium One, and shortly after that, I had him on the show. And actually, I had to sit down and make myself a flowchart based upon how he traced it. And that thing is so convoluted, but everything turns around, comes back to the Clintons, Poindexter, <laughs> that's what I call him, and, uh, and uh, Russian, and Russia. I mean, it, it's just that trio. It keeps going around and around in a circle, and yet everything comes back to that. And, and, and the media won't touch it because it's Clinton. I'll be honest with you, Ann and CS. It's not as complicated as you as he may have made it out to look. It is really not. And maybe one day in the future we can talk about that. And I can. It is. If I break it down to you, you're going to look at it and go, "Oh, are you kidding?" You'll see it right there in front of you, and you'll be shocked. You will be shocked on how easy it was for. Uranium one to happen, but like I said, that's for another time, if you're willing. But as far as oh. you know, what's going on in Puerto Rico? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said, oh, definitely have you back on for that. That's for sure. I will have no problem doing that, and honestly, I think you will get a kick out of it. If you'll just look and go, oh my god, that's so easy. But as far as what's going on in Puerto Rico now, as you know, they still have an energy problem. But that's okay, ladies and gentlemen, because you see, you can still go vacation in Puerto Rico because the tourist areas, oh, they're, they're up and running. They're up and running extremely well. Oh, yeah. Forget about the people in the mountains. Forget the people in, living in poverty. The, the tourist attractions, they're up and running, so you can go and have a great time because that is where their main focus was. Yep. Yep, absolutely. But yet, you know, they had schools that had to close for days on end because the schools had no power with these rolling blackouts. And no one ever knows when these rolling blackouts would go through. Businesses would have to close, but not the tourist areas. No, 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 no. For the little guy, the average person on the island, they're fair game. But let's protect that tourist dollar, that almighty dollar. Agreed. What the irony is is that even with these blackouts and the power failures, the 
inability to have electricity, they're paying 300 times more than people in New York City are paying. Now, I'm sorry. I moved out of New York back in 2001, and our average electric bill per month was somewhere around $300, and that was in 2001. I'm afraid to even ask what the electric bills are up in New York at this time, but for paying 300 times what an average New York City person pays, and I, I lived on Long Island, not in New York City. So I shudder to think what these people have to pay out just for electricity. And people don't realize if you well, don't have electricity, how, how do you keep your, your food uh, from going bad? Uh, what if you need to have refrigerated medicine you know, without electricity? What if you need uh, a certain machine in order to survive, whether it's oxygen or whatever it is? If you don't have these things, how many people are dying because of these rolling blackouts? That's something that no one is asking. And they're not going to. They're not going to because, you see, that's yesterday's news. The suffering of the people of Puerto Rico, that's yesterday's news. Nobody cares about that now until they need it again to actually make the current administration look very badly. Now, this was even going on during the previous administration until the hurricanes hit, and they saw this as an opportunity to make this administration look very bad. So with this, they're not going to report it until they need it. That's how it goes with most of the mainstream media today. We're not going to report it until we need it to make this person or that person look bad, as opposed to the smaller media outlets, you know, where you find them on the Internet. The ones that I read myself, like the Washington Examiner, uh, The Hill, you know, these other places, these other websites that I read that are very, very, very honest. They do their research. They're very good at what they do. And I have respect for those sites. As far as other ones, like I said, it's the story of today that matters. Because, God forbid, in a 24-hour time span, during the course of one day, 24 hours, you can't take five minutes to report on Puerto Rico. Because, you know, there just isn't enough time as opposed to The Hill and The Washington Examiner and a few others, well, they still report on this stuff, even though they have limited web space. So 24 hours, five minutes, is just that's just way too much time to spend on the suffering of Puerto Rican people. Now, it's just the attention pain. If you can't, you can't do it in 140 characters or less, people are not going to pay attention. And that's the shame of it. In today's day and age, if it's short and sweet and you can just catch it as you're walking through the room, that's all you need. But God forbid you take the time to sit down and learn and delve into a subject. I mean, the shameful part is, as you talk about these rolling blackouts, um, they've increased by 449% throughout the island. In 2013, they had 1,007 interruptions. And you think of it, you've got 365 days that's like two and a half to three blackouts per day. That is an amazingly large amount. In 2015, they rose to 5,707. That's, that's more than 10 a day. That's close to what, 11, 12 a day? Yep. How can you live with something like this going on? But, hey, that's okay. The windmills were working. Yeah, they were spinning, but they just weren't connected to the grid. 
Mm. And, and there was also another uh, scandal connected to Preta. Am I saying that correctly? The uh, the Puerto Rican uh, P R E P A Prepa, right? Uh, they closed Prepa. their. They used oil to, I gather, to fuel these uh, power plants, uh, and they got a hold of an oil fuel cartel uh, that poisoned the air and water in Puerto Rico for 13 years, from 2002 to 2015. And the lawsuit on this charges the government received over $100 million to look the other way as illegal and poisonous oils was used throughout the entire prepper power system. In 1994, they closed their oil testing labs and outsourced the test to a private lab facility that falsified the lab results. Between 500 and 600 test lab results by the Caleb Brett lab were falsified. So the people of Puerto Rico were getting poisoned. What happened to this lawsuit and what happened to this investigation? I mean, no wonder why the power plants don't work when they use bad oil. You're, you just raised a very good question. If they're going to use bad oil that poisons the people and yet sweep that under the rug, what's so complicated about hiding the fact that windmills weren't connected to the grid. I mean, that's even easier to hide. That's even easier to sweep under the rug. So it's a simple case that the Puerto Rican politicians, I refuse to say the Puerto Rican people because it's not on them. The Puerto Rican politicians are very adept. They they have this talent for hiding things until somebody comes along and says, hey, this windmill has been ripped off. And all of a sudden they take a look and start investigating and taking a closer look and finding out these aren't connected to the grid. Because seriously, the only one of the only ways you're going to find out that the windmills were not connected to the grid is if you take an energy expert, take him out to Puerto Rico, and he does an analysis of energy before, energy during, and energy after the windmills. That's how he's going to come up with this information. Or ripping the windmills right out and taking a look, and guess what? You're going to find whether they are or they're not connected to the grid. And in this case, Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria may have done Puerto Rico a huge favor if, and this is, the, this is it, mighty small word with a very big meaning, if somebody has the audacity to do something about it and fix the problem. I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon unless mainstream media or lamestream media wakes up and starts talking about it. Now, there was an article that I had pulled up from 2016, September 12, 2016, and they were talking about massive blackouts that hit Puerto Rico's that had classes canceled for the second day uh, where all the public schools were closed. And about well over a quarter million customers throughout the island lost power. Now, um, there was a fire at the power plant, all right, and it took down two transmission lines. Um, now, there is a Jennifer Gonzalez Collin of the new progressive party called for Barack Obama to declare a state of emergency. Now, you explained why that couldn't be done. Uh, but it turns out that there was a faulty switch at the El Nueva Dia plant. However, at, while this was going on, the reasons why this was happening is because the 
power company a $9 million debt so they had no money to make the repairs they were claiming. Now, how does a power plant go $9 billion in debt? And this is a public company. It's not privately owned. The government of Puerto Rico owns this power company. So how do they go $9 billion? Oh, that's right. I just forgot. I forgot. I just did an oxymoron. It's the government. You know, every time we speak about socialism and how it doesn't work, we keep bringing up Venezuela. And that is a great example. But there's another example that's much closer to home, and that is Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is, is treated by these politicians as this little socialist enclave where they, they're just, honestly, it's the only thing I can say. They're treated like it's, it's a, they've converted Puerto Rico, they've converted Puerto Rico into a socialist enclave. Everything's given. And if you earn something, it's because it was given to you. And that's how they make you feel. It wasn't your hard work. It's because we felt benevolent enough to give it to you as a reward for what you've done. And private corporations, you know, Bacardi can never leave Puerto Rico because Bacardi, even though it's, it's rum, it's still Puerto Rico is Bacardi, and Bacardi is Puerto Rico. These two names are synonymous with each other. And for Bacardi to leave Puerto Rico would be a huge mistake on the corporation's part. So they have to deal with what they have to deal with. That's why they have these two windmills for themselves. That's why they put up with the Puerto Rican politics, and they're also used to the Puerto Rican politics, and they know how to work their way through the Puerto Rican politics. But anybody else that goes there... It's like a socialist nightmare for any new corporation to go in there and do what they need to do in order to grow and hire people. So if we want to take a look at another failure of socialism, let's take one to look at, some, at one that's much closer to home, which is part of the United States. Socialism is in the United States, ladies and gentlemen. It's being... It's, it's part of the political system of the United States, and it's in Puerto Rico. Let's not even talk about, well, we can't let socialism come in. It's already in. It's here. And it's starting with Puerto Rico. And it's been like that for decades. And even though nobody wants to use Puerto Rico as an example here in the United States on the failure of socialism, because if Bernie Sanders trying to say, oh, well, look at Puerto Rico, well, yeah, let's look at what, thank you, Bernie, then the truth will come out. And it will be proven that socialism is a failure within the United States the same way it was a failure with the USSR, the same way it was a failure with Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Czechoslovakia, so on and so forth. Socialism has failed everywhere it's gone. And it's, a, and it's still a failure in Puerto Rico. And nobody wants to look at that shining example of complete and total disaster. Absolutely. You are absolutely correct. Go ahead, CS. I'm still, I'm still stuck on first base here. I understand <laughs> Posse Comitatus, but when right. Haiti had an earthquake, we sent Marines there to help out in a state of emergency. Does that not apply, or would that not apply to Puerto Rico, like when they had the power loss? 
It doesn't apply because Haiti is a foreign sovereign nation, and they requested that military aid from the United States. As opposed to Puerto Rico, the military aid that they can receive is from the National Guard, the federalized National Guard. So when you send federal troops in, and they have to stay on the ship, an Air Force personnel that lands a C-5 on the tarmac has to stay on that craft. They cannot set foot off of that craft because then the National Guard they come in and they offload everything and then they refuel the plane and then tell them, get off my island. So Haiti was a foreign sovereign nation that requested that. Posse Kumatatis only applies to the United States and its territories. That's true. All right, we got someone that's calling in. Uh, Let's read the caller in on the line, if I can get this to work properly. Uh, Area code 262, you're on the air live with Southern Sense. To whom am I speaking? Area code 262, going once, going twice. Okay, I guess they're not there. Um, But they did raise their hand to ask a question. Uh, press one twice again if you do hear us and you want to ask that question. We have just a few minutes left with you. Um, yeah, because I do remember that they were putting together the National Guard troops to go down to Puerto Rico right after the hurricanes. I also remember that Navy hospital boat, uh, shouldn't say boat, ship was sent down also, and they had to take the passengers off the island onto the ship in order to be treated. Uh, I do remember all of that, yes. Yeah. So Posse Comitatus did come into play there. But at this point, it's been more than two years, and this is not fixed at all. And I read that study. I have uh, pages of notes here uh, that I made from that. And it sounds all nice, well, and good. Uh, and I looked to see where it was coming from. And as Warp points out in the uh, chat room, he said socialism is being taught in every college and university. So I took this report with a grain of salt because they relied heavily on um, non-fossil fuels energy sources. And they relied on solar and wind and ocean tide. Now, ocean tide is pretty consistent and pretty good. But when you're dealing with the sun, you have to worry about cloudy days, stormy days. Not only that, those solar panels, that's hazardous waste. If you break one or if you need to replace one, that is a hazardous waste. And I don't remember if it's cyanide or arsenic they use in making them. So they have to be disposed of using um, the proper methods and an average homeowner, you, know, you can't just toss them in the garbage and go to the dump with them, you know? So that I have a problem with the solar energy. Plus I actually looked into it for my own home and it takes you 20 years to recoup the cost to put it in those panels up. And by the time you recoup the cost, you've got to replace the panels. And I am mm-hmm. not a proponent of wind. As you said, you know, animals are dying. Not only that, when you put a wind turbine near a residential area or an urban city, the vibrations is shown to cause emotional distress, resulting in not only mental but also physical illness because of the vibrations from these wind turbines, the noise and the wind. It's not healthy to be near humans or animals. So if you've got two technologies that they're using to push on Puerto Rico, and as you said, they're not good things. It's like, uh, uh, honestly, the best comparison I can make is electric cars. You have these electric cars, and they're great. Oh. <laughs> they have no no fuel emissions. They don't have anything. All you got to do is plug them in. One problem. 
in order to make those batteries, there are certain minerals that, are you, that you need. And how do you get those minerals? Oh, yes, you go mining. And have you seen what these strip mines look like? The scar, the deep scars that they leave on the earth? The, the soil is basically, it's wilderness area. You're strip mining. You're taking away from the ecosystem because the animals, they have to either evacuate or die. So you're destroying the ecosystem. You're leaving this, this scar in the earth that's maybe half a mile deep and God knows how wide. But yet, hey, guess what? The air's okay because um, we're not creating emissions. Yeah, but you're killing trees that clean the air. Uh, huh? Okay. Oh, you know no, what? I, that's I'll okay. Take even, I'll take it even take it even further because they don't want us to drill for oil because the petrochemicals are bad. Okay. Why don't you ask one of these tree huggers, name me one thing that you use daily, that you come into contact that is necessary for you. One thing that does not involve petrochemicals. And that includes the air you breathe that is being filtered through an air conditioning or an HVAC system. The, the electric car you drive is made with petrochemicals. So no matter what you do, your lipstick, your cell phone, your, whatever smart device, your, your silverware, the food that is packaged in, even the food is processed using petrochemicals. To produce the clean electricity, you need petrochemicals to make the equipment. To plant the farm, you need petrochemicals to run those tractors, those plows, to the fertilize. Everything in our life relies on petrochemicals, and yet we don't want to drill. Please, give me a break. I just, I'm sorry, before I go, I just want to say that. I have asked that question before. I have asked, I asked somebody that before, and here was their response. Hold on a minute. Let me check on my cell phone and see what I can come up with. My reply was, you know what? Never mind. You just proved my point. Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it gets me. It really, it really gets me. You know, we've had so much fun with having you on this. We definitely are going to have you come back on uh, again. Um, there's also another scandal. I don't know if you know about. Um, there's an article that was up in Zero Hedge just recently, and uh, MI6, the U- United Kingdom's Secret Service, is scrambling to prevent President Trump from publishing classified materials linked to the Russian election meddling investigation, uh, stating that the disclosure will undermine intelligence gathering if he releases pages from an FBI application to wiretap one of his former campaign advisors. This is funny. The Russian collusion. It turns out it may be the U.K. collusion with Russia. Uh, no, it, I think it has more to do with a collusion between the Ukrainian government at the time during the Obama administration and the U.K. And uh, I can tell you this. Uh, take a look at the Ukrainian alphabet and compare it with the Russian alphabet. And you tell me what you think. <laughs> Not much of a difference there. Not much of a difference. No, no, it's not. No, nope. not to mention it has. It, it's not going to hinder intelligence, intelligence gathering. It will hinder intelligence gathered, mm. and it will make well, it, it would make MI6 look very bad. And don't forget, it's 
Ukrainian Muslim troops that is are being used in the Crimea at this point for Russia. That's what Russia is using to keep their boot on it. Uh, so there's a lot more to talk about, and I'm going to definitely invite you back on, CS. It would be an honor and a pleasure. All right, and people can find you at theverone.ca.com, and you're up, I believe, also on Twitter. Yes, on Twitter, just it's xex underscore nsa underscore spookman, or just type in CS Walker, and you know it should come up. But yeah, follow me on there. Ask me any questions. Uh, I'm still working on editing on the book, so if I don't answer your questions right away, please, I sincerely apologize. Plus, I'm starting a podcast, a once-a-week podcast, with uh, my two co-hosts, Johanna Hoffman and Don Battaglia. And the three of us, we're going to talk about everything and anything under the sun, but mostly we're going to talk about things that are not covered in in the mainstream media, such as Puerto Rico, and... But believe me, it's not going to be stale. We plan on having some laughs, too. Absolutely. And you used to do a podcast with Rod Eccles, the friend of ours also. So there's a small world here. All right, CS. Thank you for joining us. Go ahead. Pleasure was all mine. Hey, take care, CS. Thank you very much. God bless. Hey, CS. Pleasure chatting with you. Pleasure chatting with you, CS. Have a great one, folks. All right. We'll do it. Uh, C.S. Walker at the Verone Dossier, also up on Twitter. Let's bring a, a – I cannot talk today. All right, Curtis, I'm turning it over to you. I'm going to let you introduce her because I am just so tongue-tied. I, I can barely even pronounce my own name. It's all yours, baby. Hey, welcome to the show, Tamara Lee. Hey, thank you for having me on today. It's great to be back again. Yeah, it's always, it's, always our pleasure. Thank I understand you. that you have so to we actually put the one button, the shake, the handshake button. All right. <laughs> so, oh, man. Yeah, so that was me so calling much. in. I'm like, whoops, I'm too early. I don't want to be late to this party. So I threw you out there. Sorry. And <laughs> hey, listen, so when I was putting the show us. together, well, I was going to say, as I was putting the show together, I went to go onto your website to see what was going on, what was the latest, and then I went to go onto your Twitter account, and both of them are down. Shame on you. You've been Twitter banned. <laughs> no. Okay, so there are two unrelated things at the moment. The, te- the website is undergoing some tech uh, upgrades from my uh, webmaster guy. I'll give a shout-out to Phil. Um, great web guy if you ever need any work done on getting your website up to speed and mobile optimized, all that great stuff. So um, hit me up for that. He's doing some work to get me. So I don't have all that. Uh, somebody had crashed my website, so he's taking care of some security issues there. I don't know. I'm attacked from every side. So then my Twitter suspension. So maybe it's the same nefarious people. I don't know. But my Twitter account was suspended back Memorial Day weekend. I was just um, hitting 75,000 followers after working very hard to build that account. And then I was going to, you know, apply for that coveted blue check that doesn't mean anything. But, um, you know, that was the goal because I consider myself an independent journalist and certainly a media personality. You can 
judge for yourself how great or not great, but I'm out there. And so um, I was going to apply for the blue check, and I had done a series of interviews the weekend before California primary with uh, great mega candidates, um, Antonio Sedato Jr., real uh, I say real Aaron Cruz, her Twitter handle is real Aaron Cruz, but Aaron Cruz, who is running for California Senate against Diane Feinstein, who had some of her own uh, Twitter censorship and Facebook shenanigans um, interfering with her campaign, election interference. And then uh, who else? Dr. Ken Wright, who was running against Ted Lieu, uh, Nicole, who ran against uh, Speaker Ryan before he uh, got out of the race. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, who did make it through and, as we know, is now famous from being on Saturday Night Live. Um, so I had done a, a bunch of interviews before that, and I feel like I'm missing somebody in California. But anyway, that was right before the California primaries. And then I had also done with my dear friend Pasquale Scopoliti at Thy Consigliori on Twitter, we had done a hashtag clear Flynn now which if you look that up it still is trending and you can still find a lot of activity around that hashtag we had done a series of posts on my website articles and then really leveraged the hashtag around clearing Flynn now and why that was the best hashtag why you should be cleared not pardoned all of that um, to really support uh, General Flynn and then I had interviewed General Flynn's brother, Joe Flynn from California. So I had, you know, had a a presence, at least getting messaging out there and what I would consider some exceptional guests on my shows and blog posts and things like that. And so Memorial Day weekend, I'm going through my account and all of a sudden I was locked out. And the only reason ever given was suspicious bot behavior. And I could not be so not a bot. Most not bot Twitter is my real picture. It's my business account. I link to my website. I link to my Tamerly's trend on uh, paypal.me forward slash Tamerly LLC for supporting my radio show. Um, it's all of it is there that clearly I'm not about. I had been quoted in Political Magazine after the Georgia 6 election, after we had a group of us, and I don't take credit myself because it really was a collaborative effort of so many great dedicated tweeters and patriots and, and that contested race with Karen Handel and Ossoff, who was not unlike uh, Beto down in Texas of the left throwing uh, ton ton of money, ton of celebrity endorsements, all that nonstop out in Georgia, and, and talked about how we leveraged the Twitter platform to help uh, get Karen Handel elected. And I should give a shout out to my friend George uh, Farrell at Black Pack, Real Black Pack on Twitter, who actually has, has done a great job and was involved in Karen Handel's race too, and many others of the uh, precursor to Blexit and Walkaway. He was the original winning minority voters over to conservatives. So I'll throw that in there. Shout out to him. But anyway, so all of that leading up to Memorial Day weekend, right before the California primaries, I'm locked out of my account. And I had been very careful. Um, I wasn't uh, hate what 
what Twitter is defining as hate speech, but, you know, who knows what that is these days. It's everything. Um, so I had been very careful, and New Right Network wrote an article, if you want to look at that, about what happened to my account, and I had one post on my website. That'll be back. Um, about really being a respectful tweeter. Now, I had strong opinions. I was very much pro-MAGA and supporting our president at the uh, – <laughs> I live in Twitter world too much. I'm like at real Donald Trump, at supporting President Trump. And um, so definitely a presence, but uh, not one that Twitter is uh, friendly to or wants to support civil discourse or alternative ideas to the left or their agenda. And so I waited and I thought, okay, I'm locked out. Maybe I'll, you know, after I'm in Twitmo, as we call it, I'm put on a timeout that my account would be unlocked and I'd be able to be back in business. Well, then um, I looked one day and I was suspended. And apparently it's been a permanent suspension for no reason. I mean, clearly I'm not about And if it's a, a function of their algorithms that, okay, my account had some suspicious automated behavior, clearly some person has to be behind the algorithms to where you can override an error in their system and say, okay, this person is not a bot. I've never used even one. I don't even use the, like some of the Hootsuite or some of the, it's all organic. I have done all of the work on my own Twitter account. And so there was no person to override it. So the only conclusion, I don't know, maybe you can come up to me. The only conclusion was um, they wanted to silence uh, a conservative voice. And I know I had the blue check mark, and when Laura got, you know, uh, banned this last week, and I know Laura, and I've done interviews with her, you know, it was a big to-do. Um, but I'll, I'll comment on that late after, <laughs> because I feel like I should let you talk well, for a minute. Well, the worst part is, is that if, if if you have Twitter, there's there's no person that you can pick up the phone and call and speak to. You have to send them a message if they actually acknowledge it and reply. There's no way for you to fight this. Correct. And I've tweeted that out, like maybe in all caps shouting on Twitter, which is normally bad behavior. But I called Twitter headquarters. You get three phone options, one, two, and three. None of them give you a live person that you can talk to. I've tweeted at Twitter support, at Jeff. Good friend of mine, Jeffrey Peterson, who is developing Mobile.co, who was a very successful tech entrepreneur, uh, created KPASA, which sold on NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, all of that. So he knows how to successfully build. I think he's one of less than 20 who built a successful social network. We did an interview together, and he goes, I'm going to send this to Jack because he knows Jack. I'm like, okay, please ask him for my account back. And that was the interview we did with Laura Loomer talking about censorship. It is impossible to get a hold of someone. And now, you know, Project Veritas has done a great job of exposing the Twitter bias and the Twitter shenanigans. But just if you look at it from a, a customer service point of view as a customer, right? Worst customer service ever. You can't talk to anybody. You have a complaint and they send you off into Twitter purgatory. Go ahead, well, Not that I feel strongly about this. 
what can you tell us about this this um, insidious plan from the left to see red states with Democrats so they can eventually take over, and how can we counter that? Well, so the takeaway, if anything, from the midterm elections, it's all well and good and important uh, to message and to be engaged, you know, as many of us are on the social platforms, because other people do look to see where you are if you're more informed. So my, my line has been that Americans love our country. They hate politics. They don't want to be bothered. And, and in part, that's been everybody, you know, we talk about people woke or red pills. That's been part of the problem because people have disengaged from the political process. They have uh, acquiesced their ownership of our individual liberties so that they, can, they don't have to be bothered by it. But what, what have we seen as a result of that? Those who have nefarious uh, motives and who do not value our individual liberty, our constitution, those who are uh, globalist or want the United States to be just one of a, a global entity that the UN calls the shots, not our constitution, um, we've let the fox in charge of the hen house, so to speak. So what the takeaway from the elections, besides getting the voter fraud squared away, and um, I believe that was one of the most important things to come out of the 2018, and it hopefully, I'm being cautiously optimistic, uh, that those who uh, were in a position to do so, Homeland uh, security and, and those different things in charge of correcting the voter fraud and exposing it and writing it for the 2020, um, we have to help them out as the boots on the ground. You need to get involved in your local communities. I've gone door to door and uh, in 2016, and I was in a part, Republican Party in Wisconsin, which I don't know if I should say this out loud, but Paul Ryan was very much a never-Trumper, right? So kind of what he uninvited Trump and uh, just, and I was so frustrated because I thought you were going to lose the state for Trump. And so I got, I got involved and I was out doing door to door and there was sort of a party line top down from the rhinos to not push Trump. Um, And it wasn't, over it wasn't said out loud it was more of a you know subtlety that maybe I read into it so maybe I could be wrong maybe I misread things so I'll give the benefit of the doubt but I made a point of going door to door and making sure that people had the information on Trump and I talked to him and and I'm in a community that is has been read but it's changing as younger families move in and you think about the younger families, what do we know of our universities and colleges? I mean, it's very other than the work of Charlie uh, Kirk and Turning Point USA, which I've had the privilege of, you know, watching that grow and be involved in on a, a very limited scale. But, and then, um, who's the other guy? Caleb Francis, uh, Mill Liberty Institute. I just interviewed him recently. So you have some great young people trying to counter the moveon.org and the bias of the blatant bias of the left at the universities, but they're the ones who are coming into the communities 
and they're not voting red. I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, correct? So if you, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, they won't depart from it. Um, that's a proverb that, that our kids stay pretty close to the values we've raised them with. However, it's really hard to fight the indoctrination that is so out there between the media and the universities that it is changing historically red communities, purple, and then eventually blue. Or... Or is the relocation of population, right? So that we know is the thing as well. And I'll pause <laughs> so you can <laughs> uh, get a word in well, that. You crossed so many subjects that I put aside to talk to you with. So I'm going to go back a little bit here okay. uh, because the Rush, Rush Limbar uh, had a little commentary about a article. I'm trying to see. Uh, Bear with me as I scan through this uh, about an op-ed by uh, Glenn Reynolds of Instapundent in the USA Today. And it had to Mm -hmm. do with the power of these tech companies such as Google, Twitter, Amazon, the power they have with social media and thus controlling the political spectrum out here. And Rush Limbaugh responded, and he's got a really great solution. this is what I've highlighted, that the massive amounts of Silicon Valley's big tech companies have over the, over the flow of information, access to voters, private information, and our lives in general. And his simple solution is, which is what Glenn Reynolds put forward, is go back to what Teddy Roosevelt did with the Rockefeller family, Standard Oil, J.P. Morgan, and then just simply split them. Break them up. Do the trust mm-hmm. busting. Break them up. Mm -hmm. The social media really has gotten out of hand because if you think this is a site, uh, he cited a poll, and this is getting me upset and angry because this is how mad I am that the way they control what we should be thinking. 40% of Americans believe that the Russian and Trump colluded to win in 2016 election, even to the point of tampering with votes. And that's one of the biggest hoax that have ever been put across with the American uh, people. You know, despite the lack of evidence, people still believe in that lie because social media keeps propagating it. So they've become actually monopolies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Amazon, and you can go on with a list of those. And it's actually far more dense than we even think. They've even woven more into our grain of our culture and society. They're as bit as partisan as anything has ever been, he he said. They're exclusionary. Anything Mm -hmm. to the right of Karl Marx is obliterated and not permitted. It's simply eliminated from Facebook, Google search results, you name it, and the impact that is having on our culture is deleterious, he said. So he said, take a a page out of Rousseau's book and bust them up. There's no competition. Where, as you said, where's the customer service? Where is it where mm-hmm. I can choose between one platform or another and have my message spread freely? But no, if it's not their thinking, it has to be crushed in silence. The same thing that J.P. Morgan did, the same thing Standard Oil did. They basically control the financial markets. But this is worse. It's not just social media. It's the vote. It's also uh, society as a whole. Well, and that's the thing where we need to be the boots on the ground and counter that. Because 
And to some extent, I give people a little bit of slack in that they can't help but being uninformed or misinformed given the bias of the mainstream media taken as truth too uh, too easily, too readily. They haven't challenged their own critical thinking. I'm blessed to have come from a family of one, independent women, and two, uh, critical thinkers. We were taught to, and and I think maybe I'm old enough, (laughs) older. (laughs) Our generation was, um, you know, you often did not know the leanings, political leanings of your professors and the journalists. If they did their job well, it left you wondering, oh, I don't know what they think about it, because the goal was to challenge you to come to conclusions on your own, to seek out uh, information, and then uh, think critically about your decisions. And and I've got five millennials, and they're across the range politically, um, especially because of the various influences of their university experience, their context, and um, where they are, and you know, I took one of my daughters to vote with me, even though I know we were canceling each other out. And I said, I'd much rather that you're here voting, even though I disagree with it, than to want to silence your vote. Because in time, I think, well, in my hopes, if she hears this, she'll sit and maybe <laughs> yell at me or something. But, you know, I, I think engaging in the process is, is an important step. And then having information. And those of us who are more dialed into the alternative media, the independent journalists, the stories that are being suppressed or not being told, uh, we have to be that megaphone out amongst our community and be willing to say, you know, um, I think it was Educating Liberal, he's on Twitter, had a, a great tweet before Thanksgiving. He goes, I plan on uh, narrowing down my Christmas shopping list by just talking politics at Thanksgiving. <laughs> and it's kind of a t- tongue-in-cheek. Uh, yeah, I thought that was funny. Was, um, you know, that's what it came to in 2016 and 2018. You couldn't talk to people because it, it was so volatile if you dared support Trump because how could you? He's so crazy. Um, so it really just takes a level head, I believe, of countering all that information out there. And and be bold. Don't be afraid to say, you know, to people, not disrespectfully, but have information. I mean, information is the best thing to refute uh, the leftists. They, they can't argue it if you you argue rationally, right? No, exactly. And it's funny because when, now that I read the newspaper or any article that I read, I look at it to find what the political slant is, especially my local rag. And so I, I, when mm-hmm. I read something like that, I, I look for the political slant. I look for what they left out. And that's what I want to find out. What is it they're not telling me? Why are they pushing me in this one direction, making me think this way? But that's critical thinking. 99% of the people mm-hmm. out there are not going to do that, unfortunately. Either they don't have the time for it, or they're too lazy right. to do it, or they simply don't care. And that's a shame. Well, and that's where we have to make them care. Make it yes, personal. We do. Yes, yes. Hi there. Yeah. <laughs> I was recently up um, 
in South Carolina at my aunt's house. She's a Democrat, but I, I observed that she's always listening to um, NPR, you know. And uh, right. I, I, too, am attracted to sometimes just for their um, cultural um, shows and, mm-hmm. and events. I'm thinking, you know, for us to make, you know, true inroads, we need to come up with something to counter NPR because even though they do these cultural shows, cultural shows and things like that, of course they always sprinkle in a little bit of their propaganda. Matter of fact, a lot of it. And I think a lot. What, yeah, I think that's what attracts a lot of people who are Democrats to NPR and PBS too. They satisfy them, satisfy them on several levels, you know. And I think we need to um, kind of have to counter that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, my kids listen to NPR. I enjoy that. I like TED Talks, you know, occasionally. I like that information and learning things. But I can see through where that bias is being interjected. Um, And I don't know that those platforms are particularly uh, open to counterpoints. They maybe used to, but now not so much. So we do have to uh, know what know what the other side is listening to, and know that they they believe global warming. So to just uh, maybe attack them and say that's hogwash isn't isn't going to get you anywhere in terms of having a meaningful conversation that would persuade them. And I'll give another shout out to a, a past co-host or. A, on Blog Talk Radio, when I start out with Link Local Network, uh, Brent Hamachek, who's done a lot of writing, he has an article, which you could find on his LinkedIn page, on how do we stop talking past each other, something like that, and, and talk to each other. And uh, in his article, it says, you know, facts are not all – there's facts. I've got statistics and damn statistics. Some Mark Twain quote. I'm, I'm hacking this all up. But the point is that everyone has an opinion, but not all opinions are equal. Just like I've said to my kids, having studied uh, cultural communications, and not all cultures are the same or equal. So you have to understand in talking to people, everyone has, has an opinion, but it's not necessarily correct or factual. But I always maintained on Twitter, which was one of my frustrations with having been banned is I never attacked the person. I would attack the hit issue, absolutely, front, you know, head on. I'd tweet against, you know, Sharia law because it's not constitutional. Um, FDM, uh, absolutely against that. It's horrific against children, um, women, young girls. And, and so I'm strong in some of my statements, but it's not hate speech. It's a strong opinion um, based on hopefully some fact and information. But I never attack the person because I want to win them over to our side. I want to show them the merit of why conservatives and mega and Trump supporters, the winning argument. It is the winning platform. And we are all better if we can embrace it. Um, But, you know, you have to be able to argue that with people in a way that's not arguing with people that you uh, 
turn them off. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because I've gotten in debates on certain social media uh, platforms, and sure enough, when you start to win the argument, out comes the nasty name calling. And I back off, mm-hmm. and I just turn around and say, listen, I didn't call you names. This is supposed to be a civil discussion. If you cannot have it, then we're going to end the conversation here and now. Right. I will not, I will not put up with it, very simply. I, I'm not forceful about it, but just, hey. I didn't hurl insults at you. You wanted to have this discussion, so let's do it in a civil manner. Most of the time, people will back off and say, all right, I agree. And in the end, I find ways in which to discuss with them that they start to turn to the way I think. I had someone uh, who thought I insulted them. I called them a foul language name when I said that they were being hypocritical in their argument. Because I said they were Mm -hmm. being hypocritical, air quotes, in the air. Uh, I was told that I called them a nasty name. And after going back and forth with this individual, they finally backed down. But that's the problem that we have. We think logically and and give factual arguments for it. They use emotion. And this is what we Mm. have to counter. So we have to be able to get our facts out there, but also put it in such a manner that we can emotionally tug their heartstrings. And um, right. There are ways to do it, especially when you're dealing with money issues. Well, I think your issues. show is a great way. Yeah, your show is a great way to do it. You just put the information out there. You give people another alternative to information and points of view. And you're like, hey, you know, listen to, if it values to you, listen to us, join us, have conversation with us. And if not, then, you know, good luck to you. But um, I think that's why the independent journalists like yourself and CS and his books and writing. And for myself, um, in the interview I did with Laura Loomer, we uh, were talking about the censorship. It was right after she had been down. And um, we're quick to think it's just the left. It's just Jack and the Twitter employees and the Silicon Valley that are not wanting us to have our voices heard. That's true, but I would also assert that it's the mainstream media and that it is the rhinos, the Republicans, the old guards, the anti-Trumpers who also don't want our message out there because, you know, they want to control both the the financial reward and benefit of being the voices out there and uh, control the narrative. So we're really up against a lot of big hitters who don't want that independent journalist, that independent voice out there, you know, it leaves us feeling a little bit like the voice crying in the wilderness. But that's my point to, you know, the big with the blue check. And now I'm circling back. to that. This has been going on for a number of years, ever since the 2015, 2016 primary and Trump election, because the group of us that I was fortunate to be a part of the early uh, Twitter and how we organized and uh, strategized and then used the exponential reach of our messaging through retweeting and supporting one another. And so we had kind of honed that down to actual methodology. Well, there's a lot of great patriots who put, dedicated all, you know, an amazing amount of time and effort and talent to that messaging and helping uh, prior to the elections, getting that out there. 
and they've been dealing with, and I'll include myself in that, dealing with the the Twitter shenanigans uh, this whole time. So you'd be uh, shadow banned. You can't see tweets. You have to go through checking your quality filter if it's on or off because Twitter will, you know, do a update on their uh, software and then it, it resets you so you don't realize your quality filter is on. It's a default thing. So you actually have to go in and opt out of it. Um, so shenanigans What's the quality like that filter? have been going on. I, oh, see? I've never, <laughs> I've never heard yeah, of that. So what they do, have you come across tweets where you can't see the tweets by a person? I just did a tweet about this with uh, Janie, uh, author Janie Johnson, I think it is. Um, we follow each other. She's a blue chef and, you know, has a big following. We follow each other. I can't see her tweets. And we follow each other. If I don't want to see her, because it's labeled sensitive content. Now, that's because of that quality filter that you have to go into your settings, under your profile. You have to go in a couple different places under privacy and settings and make sure that it's turned off so that Twitter is an automatic. And that's where, back to your point and to Rush's point, of they're controlling what information you see. And it should be our decisions to decide whether or not we want to uh, have content uh, shown to us or not or to filter out what we don't, you know. And, and there's a value in that. I don't want to see porn, so, I, you know, that quality filter might be on. But for Twitter to decide and what they're doing is all that bad stuff is like a free-for-all, right? But the conservative voices are the ones that they're actually filtering out. And so you have to go into your settings, make sure it's turned off so that you can see tweets of people. But it's just, and I've seen that increasing of, you know, the, the mega accounts. And not all of them are blue checks or uh, the more well-known presence on Twitter, but their voices, they have a following. And I don't care if you have a following of 10 or 10,000 or 100,000. It's wrong to censor your voice. And that's what Twitter is doing. So I advocate for not just the big accounts that are, are have been thrown under the bus, but for all of the accounts that have experienced this. And, and uh you know, we've done a, a good job in our groups of kind of alerting if we come across uh, kind of an attack account that deliberately goes out of their way to report a mega account. So I don't know if you're familiar with that. So these, you know, the, on the left, they'll go after mega accounts and by, you know, mega, the Make America Great tweeters and report them for harassment or uh, bad you know, uh, terms of service violation of Twitter's terms. So that gets you flagged. And, and someone had done that with me in mid-May before my suspension had uh, called out one of my tweets as a bot account. And then the next thing I know, I'm being you know locked out as a bot, which wasn't true. It wasn't even like I answered their tweet. I'm like, okay, a bot's not going to reply to you. I don't know. But it's it's all of those kind of things that you have to constantly be aware of that they've 2016, 2018 was sort of a test run of how they're going to do it. And I think unless Trump does something that you referred to of breaking up these tech companies by 2020, you know, it's going to be very difficult to fight that on a, 
on a daily basis trying to uh, use the platforms for promoting candidates like Aaron Cruz, who was running against Dianne Feinstein right before, it was either right before the Republican National Convention or right before the election. They shut down her Facebook page. So she's trying to, you know, get messaging out in her last, you know, campaign meetings or where she was going to be speaking engagements and uh, they shut her down. So, you know, that that crosses the line because you actually are interfering with candidates and then manipulating election results. There's your Russia, Russia, Russia. (laughs) Well, you know, another thing the left has been doing uh, especially in this last election, is uh, when the left loses, the way that Hillary Clinton did it, she delegitimized you know, Trump's win. Oh, she got the popular vote. He got the uh, Electoral College. Matter of fact, they're trying to go after the Electoral College again. There are several different things that are going on again. Uh, Stacey Abrams right. tried the same thing, delegitimizing. And you know, with Hillary Clinton, it was identity politics, using the popular vote. With Stacey Abrams, she's saying that it's illegitimate because the vote was stifled. And she's citing a 1997 law voted, uh, that dubbed Use It or Lose It, which continually updates Georgia voting records, clearing out voters who have died, moved, changed their names either through divorce or marriage, or have not voted for an extended period of time. Now, Georgia is not the only state with this law. Matter of fact, my mother just found she was purged off the rolls because she hadn't voted in a while. I know they do it in New York. But now she's using this law to delegitimize Kemp's win. So this is the new thing. If they can't win legitimately and they don't have a valid argument for you, they've got to delegitimize you. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's what happened to gracious losers, but they don't, they don't care about our constitution, we the people, and this is, I think, been one of the exciting things to see, as well as a little bit unnerving of how far we had gotten with the turning up of the the water, the boiling pot of really being what we thought we were as free people and a constitutional America to what we really have become, and that was, uh, you know, the state-run government, shadow government. And, uh, you know, Congress, why have they been so ineffective all these years? Well, because their hands have been tied. They're just um, props in in many aspects. So I think it's going to take voters realizing, do I want my vote to be manipulated? Do and I, and I hope, and again, maybe optimistic, I hope Trump is letting some of this play out. But we can't put it all on Trump. And that's where we have to get get involved at the local level. That as we see a Stacey Abrams who won't relinquish her, her right to have won, or Hillary who won't go away, or even Obama that way, um, undermining the, the process um, and respecting the voters, it's I think it's been good for people to realize that. And my assertion, which I usually say every time I'm on a talk radio somewhere, <laughs> is that the swamp starts in our backyard. And we really have to look at our local level and get involved and have un- look at why people are involved in the positions they are 
and then if that if someone has their sites up on higher up the food chain in the political process, look and check their motives why, and so that by the time you know imagine if if Hillary had been stopped in Arkansas, well, at mm-hmm. least four men in Benghazi would be alive, but nobody held her accountable. Oh, yeah. You know, it's that oh, yeah. aim oh, small, yeah. miss small. So that would be my challenge to listeners today to get involved, to hold people accountable at the local level because it's just only, they yeah, swim it, upstream so that by the time they get to the D.C. swamp, it's just how they go. <laughs> well, you touched on another <laughs> subject when you said voter fraud. Now, there was arrests in Georgia, Florida, and Texas for voter fraud. The latest one is out in the L.A. area. Uh, now, when they have these ballot initiatives that go out there, people go out there and get signatures for these ballot initiatives, petitions, or whatever they are. And then usually some are paid in turns or something like that, and they get maybe a dollar per per person they sign get to sign up the petition. So the person collecting the signatures is the one that gets paid. Well, this went a little bit further. And some of these petitions, depending upon how important it is, it can range now up as far as much as $6 per signature. Well, this one got the other way around. They actually went out to Skid Row, set up a card table in front of a soup kitchen, and as people were waiting to get into the soup kitchen, they were having people sign up, voter registration, and they were paying them in cigarettes or a buck for each mm-hmm. person, each person that was willing to sign up. That is illegal. You can pay someone to collect mm-hmm. signatures for a petition, one individual, and you get paid for all the signatures you get. You do not pay someone to fill out a voter registration. You do not pay someone to sign the petition. So they've arrested nine people in reference to this scam in L.A. This is how bad it is. Now, this is, if this happened in L.A., I'm wondering how many other places, Tamara, has this going on? And in oh, places well, that are close my- as... Mia loves right with only what it was seven hundred and some odd votes she lost by. How many were something like this? Yeah, well, well that was after election day. I tweeted out because Trump was like, you know, fine, have the House. We won the Senate, which was more important and better, and that was his strategy. And Trump is always way ahead of him. And they were like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, we'll be right back. And then they're now like trying to win the Senate too. It's like they're so obvious, but. My mom was involved in League of Women Voters back in the day, and um, she got out of it because they were being, they started unethical uh, voter registration, and she just didn't like, and it was supposed to be a nonpartisan organization, but we know it's, you know, very much left-leaning, and uh, she was bothered by that, what she saw back in, I think that was the 60s, where they go to nursing homes or, you know, mental patients who probably weren't really cognizant of what was going on. And uh, that, so that's been in the Democrat playbook for a long time. I think the new news about it is we're just realizing how big of an impact that it's had. And the thing of the 2016 of realizing that the Uniparty, when we thought, oh, we want it, you know, with the Bushes, oh, we have a Republican now. But really, when you look at it, their skins and shirts on the same team just taking turns up at bat. They're all playing nice together in the sandbox because 
they have the same agenda. And it's not our agenda. It's not the agenda of the American people. And I think that's been one of the big wake-ups of uh, since Trump, for sure, and then the 2018 voter fraud thing. And, um, you know, California is a mess. They have, their primaries are the top, their laws are so that the top two vote getters go on to the, I believe, don't quote me on that, but I believe that is how their system is rigged to the extent that you don't even necessarily get a choice between a Republican and a Democrat in the general election. So that's why they like all their uh, (laughs) non-citizen voters. (laughs) Trying to think of the nice words to say for that. (laughs) They're illegal aliens. Oh, right, my, my, look at me. I'm I'm filtering my own PCness. Shame on me. <laughs> it's like that town upstate New York that decided to give illegal aliens a vote. But oh, wait a minute, they don't get one. They get two votes to the citizens. One vote. They tried that in upstate New York. I don't think that lasted too long. I think people kind of got a little upset about that. I'm going to change the subject a little bit over here because we just had Thanksgiving. Uh, and everyone mm-hmm. sits down, and the big big thing everyone did was just before sitting down for your, your dinner, you turned on the TV and you watched the Macy's Day Parade. And now our, our nation has become so politically correct, and big corporations, in order to keep the dollars coming in, have turned so progressive that the Macy's Day Parade, the one place that you didn't see sex, you didn't see politics, that was always left at home. No one talked politics. No one mm-hmm. wanted to see blatant sex out there. No, it was nice, good, clean fun that the entire family could sit down and enjoy. From the littlest toddler to great-great-grandma, it's been killed. They have utterly, utterly destroyed it forever. Uh, they had in wow. there... And, a cast from the Broadway musical called The Prom, which was performed in the parade. And catch this. The musical is about a lesbian couple who would like to attend their high school prom together, and their performance in the parade concluded with the same-sex cast members kissing. Now, now, mind you, the LBGTQXYZLMOP community is only 5% of all of our society here in the United States, probably even less. But they had to push this into the parade. This is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And the backlash on both sides was tremendous. But it also went even insofar as uh, this guy, Chandri, uh, posted up on Twitter about, and he posted a picture of the Macy's Day, of the Macy's Christmas pajama advertisement. And he points out, and I looked at it, it didn't even dawn on me, I was looking at it. They have a lesbian interracial couple in pajamas, a gay interracial couple, a white couple, and a single black female in your Christmas ads. And he says, you can't tell me this wasn't planned. I'm disgusted with your ad, completely and utterly disgusted. This is disrespectful. This is, they're, they're trying to tell us how to live our lives. Hey, listen, mm-hmm. this used to be behind closed doors. I don't care what you do behind closed doors. But when it's in front of my kids, I have a problem with that. Well, and I've always said that, you know, as Americans, our individual rights go up to and as far as the extent of where they infringe, 
excuse me, infringe on someone else's, right? So, you know, I'm probably a little bit more open in terms of I'm like you and what someone wants to do to define their own happiness is their constitutional right. It's, you know, Christian, conservative, constitutional are not interchangeable, all the same thing. They're often paired together. They often complement each other, but they are not exactly the same thing. So constitutionally, within the law, someone has the right to determine their own happiness. That's, that's the foundation of our individual liberty. However, when that infringes on someone else or you see the biased push so much, it is a, an attack on our American values. It is intentional, and that's where people have to realize, you know, what is the message? Again, teaching our children to be critical thinkers, that just because something is said doesn't make it true, but it often makes it believed. And so that, that messaging is 100% intentional to try and change how we think and see and feel about things. And, and the family and American values are under attack by the left. And it, it's like there's no sacred ground anymore. No, uh, it's little bit by little bit they push into it. You know, first Macy's opened up their bathrooms to transgenders, and uh, not bathrooms, the uh, dressing rooms to transgenders. Then TJ Maxx started to do it. TJ Maxx had such a boycott put against them, they reversed it. But I don't know if Macy's reversed theirs, but obviously they didn't if they have these ads out there. So, you know, it makes me wonder, do I feel safe going into a dressing room in Macy's to try something on? And the answer is going to be no. No, there's such a simple solution for that, but that's not the agenda. Just make individual bathrooms and changing cells. So you spend a little money to bring the wall all the way down to the floor. Everybody can go into their private space, but that's not the agenda behind it. There are solutions to solution the left wants because they have a bigger agenda. You can, you know, I mean, and, and one could argue the malls are a dying thing anyway, so who's going into dressing rooms at all? But for the I, you know, for those who still like to go to the mall, or you're in a situation where the schools or the bathrooms or whatever, certainly we we have an obligation to an extent to meet the needs of individuals equally and fairly. But there are solutions that can be had. I mean, thinking adults can come up with something better. It doesn't have to be this socialist uh, social push for values that are contrary to what is reasonable and, and common sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Vorp writes in the chat room, I'm looking for a Chick-fil-A parade. That's a great idea. Go ahead, C.S. <laughs> Excuse me. We have two special elections today, I believe, two important ones, one in Mississippi and one in California. Does you and um, George have any um, any impact on those elections? On the work that you guys I know, are doing? Um, not, I haven't been involved in those two. I know George is always, and George is George Farrell of Black Pack, at Real Black Pack. And I uh, work on some of his Twitter campaigns to get the message out because he really does a great job. He's got the boots on the ground. He'll go to campaigns in districts to try and, um, reach out for the minority voters to win them over to conservative values 
and he's been doing this for decades. And so um, it, it's important. And it, that percentage point can be the difference of the tipping point. Like, so down in Florida with Ron DeSantis, uh, it was, I think it was 18% of black females that came out and voted for DeSantis. Now, that's a strong minority showing. And I just wrote an article um, that I'll give a shout out to our film, Gullah Geechee Quarter in the East Coast Greenways. That was a Hankerson Henry Productions LLC on uh, the Gullah Geechee community and the East Coast, which is a cultural heritage corridor that was an act of Congress promoted by James Clyburn um, back in the 2000s. And uh, the East Coast Greenways is the old rails to trails that connects from southern Florida all the way up to Maine. And it's a series of cycling trails, or hiking trails that connects this. So um, it kind of, the documentary is 30 minutes and it brings, uh, highlights that culture, ecotourism, um, which DeSantis was a supporter of the film. And uh, looking at Florida as a minority, when they tried to paint him out as a racist, well, he's not. He's been very supportive of Florida. And um, Florida is a very big mix of minorities. And I think what we're seeing is minorities are waking up to the fact that the Democrats have not had their best interests at heart. And George has had a, a big impact on that of getting the message out to reach them before um, not that Candace Owens obviously you know blockbuster this last year and blocks it and Kanye and all the other diamond and silk and 2016 people out there and the walk away for the uh, Dems or Charlie Kirk for the millennials there's been counter efforts to bring people over from just accepting those demographics as automatic Democrat vote. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say, I don't, I don't know for sure that George has any involvement in either of those special elections going on today. Other than that, he's pretty dialed into across the country trying to be supportive of um, engaging the minority communities. Well, we're down to our, our last five minutes here, Tamara, and we've had such a blast with you. And uh, I'd like to know more about that Golazici uh, film, because I actually live in the heart of it. Uh, I got St. Oh, Helena yeah. Island is just on the other side of the bridge. Uh, oh. As a matter of fact, George happens to be a good friend of ours. Um, so I want to I talk to you about that. Maybe we can, you can get me to see a showing of it. Maybe we can show it over here in uh, Buford. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of history oh, this, oh, with the Golazici. Yeah. Yeah, and um, fact, yeah, very uh, much Mitchellville so. Is the first, Mitchellville was the first black settlement uh, during the Civil War, and it was an experimental se- settlement here, which is right in Hilton Head, just further down the road. So you and I will talk uh, off the uh, air and sure. see what we can arrange to get that going. Yeah, right. absolutely. But, uh, um, can, I, can I give a shout-out for have... my giving? Real quick, yep. I want to give yep. a shout out to, to Hope, Hope Instilled. It's at Hope Instilled. And um, they are a never been done before support group for chronic pain sufferers. And a good friend of mine, Jory Prajinsky, is the founder of it. And um, it, it reaches to the veteran community, to anyone dealing with chronic pain, uh, to overcome uh, the suffering and provide support and kind of a step 
program for surviving it. So anyway, that's my Giving Tuesday shout out, a great organization, nonprofit to check out, and they've got to go find me started. So thanks for letting me give that shout out. And of course, you know, find me. Okay, great. <laughs> find me well, I'll be, on Twitter. <laughs> I'll be talking to you later. <laughs> okay, thank well, you. Well, thank you for, you for joining me. us. Okay. You bye-bye. have a blessed day. You oh man. Okay. The great, great, great interviews today. A lot of fun today. So much that we could talk about. Always fun having Tamara on. And now we have another frequent guest to come back on with CS. CS. Uh, so that's all we got for today. Uh, we've got a show lined up for uh, Friday. I'm waiting for the confirmation on the second guest. Uh, both of them are authors uh, dealing with Islam and jihad here in the United States and the attack on our Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs. So that's going to be a, a jam-up show. Uh, we've got coming up also a news break. Uh, December 7th, we, Corey Lewandowski has a new book out. He will be our guest on the show also. So we've got great shows lined up, a lot happening, and that's all i got for today, Curtis. Yep, and we'll see everybody on Friday. Yep, and we'll be leaving with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless.